Act One, Part One of The Show Off by George Kelly. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Clara, read by Lydia. Mrs. Fisher, read by Diane Castillo. Amy, read by Jen Broda. Frank Highland, read by Tommy Hersant. Mr. Fisher, read by Jeff Butterfield. Joe, read by Matthew Reese. Aubrey Piper, read by Todd. Mr. Gill, read by Tommy Hersant. Rogers, read by Wayne Cook. Stage directions, read by AMB Suite 13. Preface. I might as well begin boldly and say that the show-off is the best comedy which has yet been written by an American. To be sure, it departs quite radically in many respects from the form which has been associated traditionally with comedy. Critics who hold by old standards may point out that it is less lavish with incident than many another native play in the same mood, but they can hardly argue that human personality has ever been made more vivid, more truthful, and more complete in the American theater. No one can question the authenticity of Aubrey Piper. He moves under his own steam from the moment the curtain rises. At no time does one feel that the hand of the playwright is still on the wheel directing the character to move in this direction or that in order to suit the exigencies of the story. And it seems to me that there is soundness in the scheme whereby the author makes some one character a concern above that of the tale itself. I am no longer drawn to the play with the big idea or the comedy constructed for the sake of a single telling scene. When an author works from such a blueprint, he must almost inevitably find it necessary to scrunch and whittle his characters now and then to make them fit into his plot scheme. He must bulldoze a little. He must regiment his folk and prusinize them. No such interference is visited upon Aubrey Piper of the show-off. He sets the pace and the story follows. This man is no creature born within the wings of the theater. We have sat desk to desk with him in offices. He is bumped against us in the subway, and as like as not he lives, in the flat just across the hall. He has been wrenched out of life. But there is one more test which must be met by a play if it is to live among the drama of the first order. The playwright has done a great deal if he has been able to create a living, breathing, individual human being. He must do more. At some point in the story, this fictional man or woman must stand as a symbol of all mankind. There should be in him some recognizable, common factor of humanity. And Aubrey meets the test. He brings us to the realization of the toughness of human fibre. In him, there glints the glorious truth that personality endures against the blows of circumstance. When I was in college, much was said about the playwright's obligation to show the development of character. I hold that this obligation is imaginary and should be generally discarded for the sake of the truth. As a matter of fact, it seems to me that human beings are molded early and that their later history is largely an account of the manner in which fate breaks its fingernails in vain efforts to claw them into new habits of thought. 
the aubrey piper whom we see at the close of the show-off is precisely the same person who stalked into the first act he has not changed we know him better and more intimately because we have seen his reaction to various emotional stimuli but the development has been in the minds of the audience and not in the soul of aubrey personally i came to like aubrey exceedingly before the evening was done i think that george kelly has succeeded magnificently in this respect it is essential that the audience should come in time to have a friendliness for the central figure of the comedy but this is no easy task special pleading will not avail and kelly does not employ it an author like a judge or a baseball umpire is under obligation to preserve at least the appearance of neutrality he may not lean down from olympias too palably to pat his favourite character on the head tenderness he may have indeed we think it becomes the dramatist but it must be shown subtly the sleight of hand ought to be fast and skilful enough to deceive the human eye and so we have it here george kelly builds up the case for aubrey piper by countless small strokes by degrees he opens up the heart of the man there he stands liar braggart egotist but the very consistency of his faults colors them with magnificence from prometheus down mankind has chosen for its heroes men who stood pat be yourself mother fisher cries aubrey to his mother-in-law in times of stress and it is a slogan which he has taken to heart there is no need for any one to say be yourself aubrey he is never tempted for a moment to be anything else of course it may truthfully be said that aubrey lives in a fantastic dream world of his own creation but once he has built his world he stands by it god himself has done no more Haywood Brown the first act act one part one after a slight pause a door out at the left is heard to close and then clara comes in carrying a fancy box of candy she glances about the room and crosses to the kitchen door at the right anybody out there she crosses back again towards the left laying the box of candy on the centre table as she passes upon reaching the parlour doors at the left she opens them and calls into the parlour you in there mom mrs fisher can be heard coming down the stairs clara turns with a glance towards the hall door and moves over to the mirror above the mantelpiece mrs fisher appears in the hall door and glances in at clara oh it's you clara she peers out into the hall where is everybody i thought i heard that front door open where are they all mrs fisher moving towards the parlor door your pop's gone over to giuseppe's for some tobacco i don't know where joe is she glances into the parlor then turns and kisses clara clara moves down to the chair at the left of the centre table and mrs fisher moves over to the kitchen door at the right i don't know how you can stand that fur on you clara a night like this it's rather cool out mrs fisher calling out through the kitchen door you out there joe clara sitting down he isn't out there mrs fisher turning around to the cellar door at her left 
He must be around here somewhere. He was here not two minutes ago when I went upstairs. Opening the cellar door and calling down. You down there, Joey? Joe from the cellar. Yes. All right. Closes the cellar door. What do you want? Mrs. Fisher turning to the cellar door again. What? Joe and Clara speaking together. What do you want? He says, what do you want? Mrs. Fisher opening the cellar door again. I don't want anything. I was just wondering where you were. She closes the cellar door and comes a step or two forward, fastening an old-fashioned brooch that she wears on the front of her dress. He spends half his time down in that cellar, fooling with that old radio thing. He says he can make one himself, but I says, I'll believe it when I see it. There's some of that candy you like. Mrs. Fisher crossing to the center table. Oh, did you bring me some more of that nice candy? Beginning to untie the ribbon around the candy. I never got a taste of that last you brought. Why not? Why, Lady Jane took it away with her down to the office and never brought it back. She says the girls down there edit. I says, I guess you're the girl that edit. She says she didn't, but I know she did. Well, I hope you'll keep that out of sight and don't let her take that too. Mrs. Fisher opening the candy. Oh, she won't get her hands on this. I can promise you that. Let her buy her own candy if she's so fond of it. Clara opening the delineator. She won't buy much of anything if she can get hold of it any other way. Oh, isn't that lovely? Look, Clara. Tilting the box of candy towards Clara. Don't that look nice? Yes, they do their candy up nice. Mrs. Fisher gingerly picking up the cover of lace paper. That looks just like Irish Point lace, don't it? Clara nods, yes. I think I'll put that away somewhere. In a book or something. My, look at all the colors. Look, Clara, did you ever see so many colors? It's pretty, isn't it? It's beautiful. Seems a pity to spoil it. Do you want a bit of it, Clara? Not now, Mom. I think I'll take this pink one here. I like the pink one. She picks up the box and the lid and moves around to the chair at the right of the table. Mind how they all have this little fancy paper around them. You'd wonder they bother, wouldn't you? Just for a bit of candy. She tastes the candy and chews critically. That's nice candy, isn't it? Yes, I like bonbons. Mrs. Fisher is sitting down. I do, too. I think I like them better than most anything. Putting the box of candy down on the table. I'm sorry, these are not all bonbons. Clara, looking up from the delineator. They are all bonbons. Her mother looks at her. There's nothing else in there. Oh, are they? I thought only the pink ones were the bonbons. No, they're all bonbons. Well, that's lovely. I can eat any one of them I like, then, can't I? She sits back in her chair and rocks and chews. How is it you're not home tonight, Clara? 
Frank had to go to a dinner of some kind at the Glenwood Club, so I thought I'd stay in town and get something. He said he might call for me around eight, eight o'clock. I was in anyway about my lamp. Mrs. Fisher, rocking. Men are always going to dinner somewhere. Seems to me they can't talk about anything unless they've got a dinner in front of them. It's no wonder so many of them are fat. Clara, turning a page of the delineator. Where's Amy? Upstairs? Yes, she's getting dressed. I was just hooking her when you came in. Is she going out? I don't know whether she is or not. I didn't hear her say. Leaning a bit towards Clara and lowering her voice. But it's Wednesday night, you know. Is that fellow still coming here? Oh, right on the dot, such as he is. Sunday nights, too, now, as well as Wednesdays. It looks like a steady thing. And you never in your life heard anybody talk so much, Clara. I don't know how she stands him. Your pop can hardly stay in the room where he is. I believe in my heart that's the reason he went over to Giuseppe's tonight, so he wouldn't be listening to him. Doesn't she take him into the parlor? She does, yes, but she might just as well leave him out here, for he's not in there five minutes till he's out here again, talking about socialism. That's all you hear. Socialism and capital and labor. You'd think he knew something about it. And the Pennsylvania Railroad, he's always talking about that, too. That's where he works, you know. I don't know what he does down there. He says himself he's head of the freight department. But as I says to our Joe, I says, I don't know how he can be head of anything from the talk of him. Joe says he thinks he's a nut. And your pop told him right to his face here last Sunday night that he didn't know the meaning of the word socialism. She checks herself and gets up. I'd better not be talking so loud. He's apt to walk in on us. She moves up towards the hall door and glances out. He's a great joker, you know. That's what he did last Sunday night. Coming forward again to a point above the center table. I never got such a fright in my life. Your pop and me was sitting here talking just the way we are now when all of a sudden I glanced up and there he was, standing in the doorway there, doing this. She points her forefinger and thumb at Clara and wiggles her thumb. Clara laughs faintly. As though he was a bandit, you know. Well, I thought the breath'd leave my body. Then he says, Ha, ha, that's the time I fooled you. I don't know how long he'd been standing there, but as luck could have it, we wasn't talking about him at the time, although we had been talking about him not five minutes before. I don't know whether he heard us or not, for I don't know how long he'd been standing there. I hope he did. It'd just be the price of him for being so smart. With a glance towards the hall door and speaking very confidentially. But you know would kill you, Clara. 
You can't say a word about him in front of her. Clara moves. Oh, not a word. No matter what he says, she thinks it's lovely. When Joe told her here the other night he thought he was a nut, she just laughed and said that Joe was jealous of him because he could express himself and he couldn't. Clara smiles. You never heard such talk. And you know, Clara, I think he wears a wig. Clara laughs. I do, honestly. And our Joe says he thinks he does, too. But when I asked her about it here one morning, I thought she'd take the head right off me. You never seen anybody get themselves into such a temper. She says, it's a lie. She says, he don't wear a wig. She says, people always say something like that about a fella that makes a good appearance. But I think he does just the same. And the first chance I get, I'm going to take a good look. She moves around to her chair again at the right of the table. He often sits right here, you know, under this light while he's talking. Selecting another piece of candy. And I'm going to look close the very first chance I get. She sits down. I can tell a wig as good as anybody. She rocks and looks straight out, chewing. She won't make a liar out of me. Amy from the head of the stairs. Mom, did you see anything of that blue bar pin of mine? Mrs. Fisher calling back to her. Which blue bar pin? Well now, how many blue bar pins have I got? I don't know how many you've got, and I don't care. Turning back around and speaking rather to herself. So don't be bothering me about it. Calling up to Amy again. If you can't find it, go look for it. She resumes her rocking and her chewing. She thinks all she's got to do is come to the head of them stairs and holler and everybody'll jump, but she'll get sadly left. I've got something else to do besides waiting on her. She takes another bite of candy and turns casually to Clara. Did you get your lamp yet? No, that's what I was in town today about. The girl says they haven't been able to match the silk till yesterday. I wish I could get something done to that one of mine there in the parlor. The wire's right out through the silk in two places. Why doesn't Amy take it in some day? Mrs. Fisher makes a sound of amusement. When she's going to work. Why don't she? It's all Amy can do to take herself into work these days. I've almost got to push her out the door every morning. Couldn't she take it over at lunchtime? She says she hasn't time at lunchtime. Oh, she has so time. Of course she has. It's only at Ninth and Chestnut, and she's at Eighth. That's what I told her. I says, I bet if it was something for yourself, you'd have plenty of time. Leaning towards Clara. But you know, what I think, Clara, I think she's meeting this fellow at lunchtime. Because in the mornings here, she stands fixin' herself there in front of that glass till it's a wonder to me she don't drop on the floor. 
and whenever you see them getting very particular that way all of a sudden there's something in the wind i says to her the other morning when she was settling herself there till i got tired looking at her i says you must be going to see him today ain't you and she says he must be on your mind isn't he no i says but by the looks of things i think he's on yours and i says maybe after you get him you won't think he was worth all the bother you went to because you know clara she don't know a thing about him except that he works in the pennsylvania freight office i believe he did tell her that much but she don't know whether he works there or not he could tell her anything and she'd believe it taking another bite of candy and settling herself in her chair before she'd believe me that's where he works her mother looks at her sharply at the pennsylvania freight office how do you know frank knows him frank hylett yes he says he eats his lunch at the same place there at fifteenth and arch and does he say he knows him yes he says he's seen him around there for a long time i've often heard him speak of him but i didn't know it was the same fellow frank always called him carnation charlie he says he's got a big carnation in his buttonhole mrs fisher tapping the table conclusively that's the one he's always got it on when he comes here too frank says he's never seen him without it i haven't either and i believe in my heart clara that's what's turned her head clara smiles you often see things like that you know the worst fool of a man can put a carnation in his coat or his hat over one eye and half a dozen sensible women'll be dying about him well frank says this fellow's absolutely crazy that's what your father says he says they kid the life out of him down around the restaurant there well he don't know who frank highland is does he no frank didn't tell him he says he just happened to get talking to him the other day and he mentioned that he was calling up on a girl up this way named fisher so then frank found out what his right name was and when he came home he asked me about him well is he sure it's the same fellow he told me his name was piper mrs fisher with finality that the name aubrey piper i don't know where he got the aubrey from i never heard of such a name before did you yes i've heard the name of aubrey mrs fisher rocking well i never did sounds to me more like a place than a name amy can be heard coming down the stairs here she comes she snatches up the box of candy and puts it under her apron don't say anything now it be no use trying to be casual what color are you having your lampshade made clara amy hurrying in at the hall door mom you must have seen something of that bar pin of mine i can't find it anywhere she tosses a beaded bag onto the center table and turns to the mantelpiece and looks for the bar pin mrs fisher abstractedly i saw a pin of yours in one of the drawers in the buffet there a few days ago i don't know whether it's there yet or not amy hurrying across to the buffet at the right 
how's it you're not home tonight, Clara? She starts to rummage in the buffet drawers. Clara, casually. I had my dinner in town. Is that parlor all right, Mom? Certainly it's all right. Well, did you cite it? Mrs. Fisher, sharply. Certainly I cited it. All right, Mom. Don't make a speech about it. Mrs. Fisher, considerably ruffled. No, but you'd think the way she says it that I sat here all day with my two hands as long as each other. Amy finds the pin and slams the drawer shut, leaving various ends of tape and pieces of lace hanging out. Then she starts back towards the mirror over the mantelpiece. Did you find it? Amy disrespectfully. Yes. Mrs. Fisher, rising, still holding the candy under her apron, and stepping over to the buffet. It's a wonder you wouldn't leave these drawers the way you found them. She does that every time she goes near this buffet. She puts the various odds and ends back into the drawers and closes them. She's in such a great rush lately. Amy settling herself at the mirror. Isn't that a new dress on you, Clara? Yes. Mrs. Fisher coming back to her chair. I'd like to see the kind of house you'll keep. Well, I hope it won't be anything like this one. I'll tell you that. Mrs. Fisher stopping halfway to her chair. Oh, go easy, lady. You might be very glad to have half as good if you live long enough. Continuing to her chair and looking keenly at Clara's dress. I thought I hadn't seen that dress on you before. She sits down. No, I only got it last week. Stand up there till I see it. Clara gets up and takes a couple steps towards the left, pulling down her skirt, then turns around to her left and faces her mother. Amy comes down to the center table, looking sharply at Clara's dress. I got it at a sale in Strawbridge's. Amy opens her beaded purse on the table and looks at herself critically in the little inside mirror, then adds a touch of powder. It's a nice length. I didn't have to have a thing touched on it. That's what I was telling you about the other day, Amy. Do you see the way that dress hangs? Yeah. Mrs. Fisher is speaking directly to Clara. There was a dress on Queen Mary in last Sunday's ledger that I was saying to Amy I thought it'd look good on me. And it had all buttons up and down the front the way that has. Clara coming back to her chair. A lot of the new dresses are made that way. How much was it? Clara sitting down. Forty-two seventy-five. Amy starts to polish her nails. Mrs. Fisher turning away with a lift of her eyes to heaven. You must have plenty of money. Mom, where'd you put those roses I brought home? They're out there in the dining room. Amy starts towards the right. I put them in some water. Amy goes out and Mrs. Fisher rocks for a second or two. Then she turns and calls after Amy. I think it's time you lit the light in that parlor, Amy, if that fellow of yours is coming here tonight. She rocks a little bit more, then turns casually to Clara. What time is it by your watch there, Clara? With a glance toward the mantelpiece at the back. That old clock of ours is stopped again. Clara looking at her wrist watch. Quarter past eight. 
Mrs. Fisher, getting up suddenly. I must tell her. The box of candy lands on the floor. My God, there goes the candy. Pick that up, Clara. I can't stoop. And put it out of sight. Going towards the door up at the right. It's a wonder I didn't do that while she was in here. Amy? Yes? Clara says it's a quarter past eight by her watch. You'd better get some kind of a light in that parlor if that fellow's coming. She moves back towards the chair, then speaks in a very subdued tone to Clara. She brings flowers home with her from the city now. Every night he's coming, she must have flowers for him in the parlor. She sits down. I told her, I says, I bet it'd be a long time before you bring any flowers home from the city to me. That's another new dress on her tonight, isn't it? Mrs. Fisher, straightening the magazines on the table. She's had it about a week. What's she getting so many new dresses for lately? Heaven knows I don't. That's the fourth I've seen on her since Easter. Trying to make him think she's rich, I guess. I told her the other night she might not get so many after she gets him. Amy, entering from the right, carrying a vase of roses, and crossing directly to the parlor doors at the left. You need another box of matches out there, Mom. Is that box of matches gone already? Pretty near. She goes into the parlor. I swear I don't know where all the matches go to. Seems to me all I do is buy matches. Amy strikes a match in the parlor. Be careful of them lace curtains there now, Amy, if you're going to light that lamp. The lamp is lit in the parlor, and Amy closes the parlor doors. Clara, rising and handing her mother the box of candy, which she has been holding since she picked it up from the floor. I think I'll go before he comes. Mrs. Fisher, rising. You'd better, unless you want to be here all night. Clara moves up to the looking-glass over the mantelpiece, and Mrs. Fisher crosses to the buffet with the candy. For if he ever starts talking, you'll never get out. She puts the candy into one of the drawers, then starts across towards the hall door up at the left. You wouldn't mind, you know, if he'd stay in there in the parlor. But the minute ever he hears a voice out here, he's out like a jumping jack. Amy can be heard coughing out in the hallway, and, as Mrs. Fisher passes back of Clara, Clara half-turns and suggests, with a movement of her hand, that Amy might overhear her. Oh, he's not here yet. You'd know it if he was. She peers keenly out into the hallway, then turns and tiptoes back to Clara, and speaks in a very low tone. She stands out there in the vestibule until she sees him get off the trolley, then she comes in and lets him ring so he won't think she's been waiting for him. She tiptoes back and peers out into the hallway again, and Clara moves over to the right, adjusting her neck piece. Mrs. Fisher comes back to the center table. You've never seen anybody so crazy about a fellow. Well, I think somebody ought to tell her about him, Mom. Mrs. Fisher, folding the ribbon and the paper from the candy box. What's the good of telling her? She'd only give you a look if you said anything about him. Well, I'd say it anyway, whether she gave me a look or not, for remember what I'm telling you, Mom. It's you that'll have them on your hands if she takes him. Her mother looks at her sharply. 
I'll have them on my hands. Clara, turning to her mother. Well, now, who else will, Mom? You couldn't leave her out on the street, and that's exactly where she'll land if she takes him. For you know how long Amy could get along on $150 a month. Takes more than that to keep herself. Never name a house and a husband. Well, that's exactly what he gets, for he's only a clerk down there. He told her he was the head of the department. He's a clerk, Mom. Like a hundred others down there. Frank knows what he does. Mrs. Fisher, moving a step or two nearer to Clara. Well, why don't you say something to her, Clara? Oh, you know how much attention she'd pay to anything I'd say. Mrs. Fisher, with measured definiteness. She won't pay any attention to what anybody says. Especially if she knew it was Frank Highland that said it. She thinks everybody's jealous of him, and jealous of her because she's getting him. So let her get him. If she makes her bed, let her lie in it. Clara, looking straight out. Well, that's the trouble, Mom. It isn't always the person that makes the bed that lies in it. Very often somebody else has to lie in it. Mrs. Fisher, turning back to the table. Well, it'll be nobody around here, I can promise you that. Clara, turning to the buffet mirror. Maybe not. No maybe about it. But you know what you are, Mom, where Amy's concerned. Mrs. Fisher, taking a step towards Clara. Why, don't be silly, Clara. Do you think your father'd be listening to that rattle brain here every night? Clara, turning and speaking directly to her mother. He has to listen to him now, doesn't he? Or go out as he did tonight. The front door closes. They both turn and glance in the direction of the hallway. Maybe this is Frank now. There is a slight pause. Then Frank Highland comes in and comes forward to the center table. Hello, Frank. Hello, Mother. Hello, Clara. He puts his hat down on the table. I was just going. I thought maybe you weren't coming. Highland, looking at his watch. I couldn't get away from there until nearly eight o'clock. Frank, Clara says you know this fellow that's coming to see our Amy. Who, Piper? Yes, the one that does so much talking. Yes, I know him. He moves to the left and sits down on the arm of the Morris chair. I think he's crazy, Frank. Highland makes a sound of amusement. <laughs> I do, honestly. And Pop and Joe says they think he is, too. Mom says he told Amy he was head of the freight department, Frank. He did, honestly, Frank, and she believes him. But Clara says you say he's only a clerk down there. That's all he is, Mom. He isn't the head of the freight department, is he, Frank? Frank sits, looking away off, dreamily. Frank. Highland, turning. I beg your pardon. Uh, what did you say, dear? He isn't head of the freight department down there, is he? No, he's just one of the clerks. Mrs. Fisher, turning to Clara. Now you see that, and she'd only laugh at you if you told her that. Turning back to Highland. How much do them freight clerks get a month, Frank? Highland is gazing out of the window at the left. Frank, Mom is talking to you. Highland, turning. 
Oh, uh, I beg your pardon. Uh, what did you say, Mother? I say, how much do them freight clerks get a month? Well, about a hundred and forty or fifty dollars. I don't know exactly, uh, but not any more than that. His eyes wander to the window again. What are we going to do about it, Frank? It looks like a steady thing. He comes Wednesday and Sunday nights now, and if she ever takes him, she'll be the poorest woman in this city. You know how our Amy spends money. Turning to Clara. She's got seven pairs of shoes up in that hall closet. Highland abstractedly. Amy certainly does let her money fly. Mrs. Fisher gives him a stony look. Well, if she does, she earns it. She might as well have a good time now while she's young. God knows what's ahead of her. The front doorbell rings, a series of funny little taps. Here he is now. I know his ring. She steps out to the mantelpiece and glances out into the hallway. Clara, turning towards the kitchen door. We'll go out the side door. Come on, Frank. Highland rises and picks up his hat from the table as he crosses below it. Good night, Mother. Mrs. Fisher is too occupied with her interests out in the hallway. Do you want to go to a picture, Clara? Clara, going out at the right. I don't care. Highland, following her. It's only about uh, twenty after eight. He glances at his watch. We can get the second show at Broad and Columbia Avenue. Mrs. Fisher, following them out. Frank, I wish you'd talk to Amy sometime and tell her what you told me. She won't believe me. I don't suppose she'd believe me either, Mother. Aubrey, out at the front door. Right on the job. Hello. The pride of old West Philly. <laughs> he laughs a bit, boisterously. I'll take your hat, Aubrey. Anything to please the ladies. The front door closes. The boy rode off with many thanks and many a backward bow. <laughs> Mrs. Fisher tiptoes into the room from the right and stands listening keenly. Do you know, I think I'll have to get hold of an airship somewhere, Amy, to come out here to see you. It is quite a trip for you, isn't it? Just one shining hour and a half, if you say it quick, by the old Brill special. And how is the mother? Mrs. Fisher's face hardens and a door closes. Then she tiptoes over to the double doors at the left and listens. Aubrey's voice can be heard fairly distinctly from beyond the doors. Say, Amy, wasn't that hole up in last night's paper somewhere out this way? Yes, it was right over here on Erie Avenue. Mr. Fisher appears in the hall door and stands, looking with amusement at his wife. He takes an old pipe and tobacco pouch from the pocket of his knit jacket and starts to fill the pipe. A doctor's house, wasn't it? Yes, Dr. Donnelly's. They got nearly $2,000. I don't believe that, Amy. Why not? I don't believe there's that much money in North Philadelphia. <laughs> Mr. Fisher gives his wife a little dig in the ribs and makes a sound like a startled cat. She starts violently, smothering a little shriek. Oh, you frightened me. Mr. Fisher continues to the center table and sets his newspaper down. 
You ought to be pretty nearly frightened to death by this time, mightn't you? He replaces the tobacco pouch in his pocket. Well, it's no wonder I'd be. You've been jumping that way ever since I knew you. Well, what do you come pussyfootin' in that way for, when you know how nervous I am? I didn't come pussyfootin' in at all. You did so, or I'd have heard you. You would have heard me if you weren't so busy listening to something that's none of your business. Well, it'll be something of my business if you go spilling any of that dirty old tobacco on my nice new tablecloth, I tell you that. She resumes her listening at the door, and Mr. Fisher brushes the tobacco from the tablecloth. I'm not spilling any of it. There's a burst of laughter from Aubrey in the parlor, and Mr. Fisher looks toward the parlor door. Who's in there, Wendy? Mrs. Fisher nods, yes, and the old man moves down at the right of the center table, picking up the newspaper and reaching into his vest pocket for his spectacles. What's he doing, laughing at some more of them West Philadelphia jokes of his? He sits down to read, in the chair at the right of the table, and Mrs. Fisher comes tiptoeing towards the chair at the left of the table. Mrs. Fisher, in a lowered tone, He was asking Amy about that robbery over at Dr. Donnelly's yesterday morning, and when she told him the bandits got away with nearly $2,000, he said it couldn't be true because there wasn't that much money in North Philadelphia. Ha, ha, ha! Mrs. Fisher, returning to the parlor doors to listen. Shush! There's a ha-ha-ha from the parlor door from Aubrey, and the old man looks quickly and distrustfully in that direction. Aubrey continues to laugh. Mr. Fisher settling himself to read. I'll bet there wouldn't have to be much money up this way to be more than he's got. There's a sound of hammering in the cellar. Mrs. Fisher hurries across to the cellar door. Aubrey in the parlor. You know, I discovered tonight, Amy, that I can save a full 15 minutes on this trip over here by transferring up 29th to the Lehigh Avenue car instead of going on in and up 19th. Mrs. Fisher opening the cellar door and calling down in a subdued voice. Joe, stop that hammering down there. We can't hear our ears up here. The old man gives a hard chuckle. Mrs. Fisher tiptoes back towards the parlor doors, looking at her husband stonily. What ails you? Amy in the parlor. It is hard to get out here unless you use the park trolley. I hear some people say it's a great deal quicker. Mrs. Fisher listens keenly again with her ear against the parlor door. I don't know how they ever found this place. I don't know how you ever found West Philadelphia. A lot of people think they haven't found it yet. <laughs> Lost somewhere between the school river and Darby. <laughs> the old man looks piercingly over his spectacles at his wife. Mr. Fisher, almost shouting. Come away from there, Josie. Mrs. Fisher is startled almost to death. She places her hand on her bosom and moves away from the door towards the center of the room. Don't be listening to that damn blatherskite. Mrs. Fisher trying to be casual. I wasn't listening to him. I was just seeing what he was saying. 
she moves up to the little stand between the hall door and the mantelpiece and picks up her knitting bag amy is very much amused at something aubrey has just said in the parlor mrs fisher glances toward the parlor doors then comes down to her husband's right and with another glance toward the door speaks very confidentially he was asking amy how she ever found this part of town to live in and she was asking him how he ever found west philadelphia he says west philadelphia ain't been found yet that it's lost somewhere between the schoolkill river and darby she moves over to the armchair at the right in front of the window and sits down i wish to god he'd get lost some night somewhere between here and the schuylkill river mrs fisher taking the needles and the pink wool out of the knitting bag what kill you too you know he always dies laughing whenever he gets off one of them bum jokes somebody's got to laugh aubrey from the parlor <laughs> that's the time i fooled you amy leave it to me to put it right over the plate amy has quite a laughing fit in the parlor her mother looks narrowly toward the parlor doors until amy has finished laughing he's got amy laughing now too she commences to knit and there's a slight pause then she glances at the clock on the mantelpiece that old clock has stopped again Neil. mr fisher without moving needs fixin it's been fixed twice don't do no good there's a pause in mrs fisher's sighs i think it's terrible lonesome not to hear the clock it's too still in a room it always sounds to me like soap bubbles melting hmm. here's a fellow here who's been left a quarter of a million dollars and he won't take it mrs fisher sharply what's the matter with him nothing at all's the matter with him he just won't take it mrs fisher resuming her knitting he mustn't be in his right mind poor boy i wished somebody'd leave me a quarter of a million dollars you wouldn't know what to do with it if they did well i know one thing i'd do with it and that'd be to have something done to that old heater of ours downstairs and not be freezing to death all next winter the way i was last aubrey laughs in the parlor mrs fisher glances toward the parlor door then shifts her knitting every sweater i start i swear it'll be the last and then i start right in on another she gives a faint little laugh and looks at her husband but he's reading so she subsides and continues to knit suddenly she stops and rests her knitting in her lap and thinks then turns to mr fisher well now what becomes of money like that neil that people won't take mr fisher squinting at her over his glasses what do you say i say what becomes of money that people won't take that way mr fisher resuming his paper why nothing at all becomes of it they just come and get it she looks at him steadily who does the people that won't take it mrs fisher is puzzled for a second mrs fisher resuming her knitting well i'll bet if they left it to me they wouldn't have to come and take it mr fisher looking at her again with a shade of irritation who wouldn't have to come and take it mrs fisher losing her temper 
Why, the people that won't take it. What are you talking about, Josie? Do you know? Yes, I do know very well what I'm talking about, but I don't think you do. Let me read this paper, will you? Mrs. Fisher are knitting rapidly. Go ahead and read it. I'm sure I don't want to talk to you. It was you that started talking to me, reading about that young man that took the money. Joe comes up from the cellar, carrying some kind of a radio arrangement on a flat baseboard and a screwdriver. Joe, I'm going to have to have that light took out of that cellar if you don't stop spending all your time down there. Joe, holding his work under the table lamp to look at it closely. You don't want me hammering up here, do you? I don't want you hammering anywhere. I want you to go out at night and get some air and not be cooped up in that dusty old cellar. There's a violent burst of laughter from Aubrey in the parlor. Joe glances toward the parlor doors, then turns, with something of distress in his expression, to his mother. Who's in there? The Pennsylvania Railroad? Yes, and he's got about as much sense as yourself. Joe, moving around to the chair at the left of the center table and sitting down. You won't say that when you're sitting here listening to the Grand Opera. He starts to tighten the small screws in the baseboard. I won't be listening to it. Don't fret. I got something else to do besides listening to a lot of Dagos singing. Mr. Fisher, looking over at Joe's radio arrangement. What is it? He says when he gets that radio thing finished, I can sit here and listen to the Grand Opera. Mr. Fisher, resuming his paper. Well, what's that, them singing people? Yes, them that goes away up high, you know, that Clara has on her Victrola. The parlor door is open, and Amy comes out, walking on air. Oh, it's all right if you let it run for a minute. She crosses to the right to the kitchen door, glancing at herself in the mantelpiece mirror as she passes. What's the matter? Nothing. Aubrey wants a drink of water. She goes out to the right. Mrs. Fisher, with a significant sound. Oh. Aubrey, coming out of the parlor. Stay right where you are, folks, right where you are. He moves to the mirror over the mantelpiece. Just a little social attention, going right out again on the next train. He surveys himself critically in the mirror, touching his tie and toupee gingerly. Mrs. Fisher gives him a smoldering look, and Joe looks at his father. Aubrey turns from the mirror and indicates his reflection with a wide gesture. There you are, mother. Any woman's fancy, what do you say? Even to the little carnation. <laughs> he gives the table a double tap with his knuckles, then laughs and moves up towards the kitchen door and calls out to Amy. Come on, Amy. Step on the United Gas out there. Customer in here waiting for the old aqua pura. Moving down to Mr. Fisher's right. Man's got to have something to drink. How about it, Pop? He gives Mr. Fisher a slap on the right shoulder. You'll stay with me on that, won't you? <laughs> he laughs and moves up to the mirror again. Old man Fisher is very much annoyed. Yes, sir. Coming forward again at the right. I want to tell those of you who are ventured out this evening that this is a very pretty little picture of domestic facility. <laughs>
he laughs a little and looks from one to the other patronizingly but nobody pays the slightest attention to him father readin mother knitting mrs fisher withers him with a quick look but then mamma is always knitting <laughs> she knits rapidly and aubrey laughs and moves up and across back of the table and little old tommy edison over there working eighteen hours a day to make the rich man richer and the poor man poorer he gives joe a tap on the back then moves back again towards mr fisher what about it popcorn slaps him on the back shake it up write a raven mr fisher starting to his feet violently god damn it leave me alone and keep your hands to yourself he crosses below the center table and up to the hall door i never saw such a damn pest in my life he goes up the stairs bristling with rage and muttering to himself aubrey is vastly amused he leans on the back of mr fisher's chair and roars with laughter sign on the dotted line and little old popsy wopsy getting sore and gonna leave us flat <laughs> he laughs again considerably then turns to mrs fisher nevertheless and notwithstanding mrs fisher i'd like to mention that the kid from west philadelphia is giving the growing boy the said and done he indicates joe with a waving gesture amy comes in from the right with a glass of water he turns and acknowledges her with an even wider gesture and there she is herself and not a moving picture amy extends the gossip water laughing and with a touch of self-consciousness blushing as she gave it looking down at her feet so bare and her tattered gown amy giggles and her mother looks sharply at amy's shoes aubrey takes the gossip water and turns to mrs fisher how's that mother fisher can't beat that little old willie shakespeare can you no sir i'd like to tell the brothers that that little old shakespeare party shook a wicked spear <laughs> he laughs at his own comedy and amy is immeasurably delighted well here's laughter ladies and turning to joe mr marconi my best regards to you he drinks i'm afraid it's not very cold he just raises his hand signifying that it is perfectly satisfactory why didn't you let it run i did but it doesn't seem to get any colder aubrey handing the glass back to amy very nice indeed and a sweeter draught from a fairer hand was never quaffed amy flipping her hand at him oh you she goes out at the right again with the empty glass aubrey laughing a bit <laughs> thank you very much he turns and moves across above the table towards joe drawing a gaily boarded handkerchief from his breast pocket and touching it to his lips yes sir mr joseph i want to tell you you're wasting time for when you're all through they'll offer you twenty cents for it and sell it for twenty million he punctuates this last remark with a series of patronizing taps on joe's back take it or leave it sign on the dotted line he taps his knuckles on the table and moves back again to mrs fisher's left yes sir that's exactly what they did to 
little old yours truly here. Twenty Lincoln anacondas for a formula that would have solved the greatest problem before the industrial chemical world today. Amy comes in from the right and, looking at Aubrey wonderingly, moves across towards the left. Aubrey moves forward and across in front of the table towards Joe. A formula to prevent the rusting of iron and steel. Joe gets up and moves up and around the table towards the kitchen door at the right. A solution of vanadium and manganese to be added to the metal in its molten state. Joe stops and looks back at him. Instead of applied externally as they have been doing. What did you say, Aubrey? I said, a simple combination of chemical elements to be added to the metal in its molten state instead of applied externally as they have been doing. Joe, speaking to his mother. Mom, do you know anything about that little screwdriver with the black handle? But, simply because it was discovered by a working man that they saw they couldn't buy? Do you mean the one you fixed the sewing machine with? Joe and Aubrey speaking together. Yes, that little short one with the black handle. They gave it the swinging door. Amy moves over to the parlor doors. Mrs. Fisher and Aubrey speaking together. I think I saw it on that shelf out there, over the sink. And now don't go upsetting everything out there. They'd rather go on paying a million dollars a year. Joe goes out and Aubrey follows him to the kitchen door. To paint their steel and iron structures throughout the country, then pay me. Do you see it, Joe? Aubrey coming down to Mrs. Fisher's left. And do you know why, Mrs. Fisher? Joe answering his mother from the kitchen. No. Then I'll tell you. Because I work for my living. That's the said and done on the whole business. Mrs. Fisher starts to put her things into the knitting bag, preparatory to getting up. Keep them poor and get them married, and then... He looks away off. As my darling old mother used to say, you've got them on their beams and hinges. Mrs. Fisher getting up. I don't see that anybody's trying to make anybody get married if they don't want to. She passes up to the kitchen door, putting her knitting bag on the buffet as she goes. Aubrey following her up. But they do want to, Mrs. Fisher. But the capitalist wants to stop them. Mrs. Fisher turning at the kitchen door and speaking directly to him. Well, I guess it'd be just as well to stop some of them. She goes out. Aubrey calling after her through the kitchen door. Ah! Don't go back on little old William Jennings Bryant, Mother Fisher. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, you know. <laughs> he turns and comes forward at the right again, laughing a little. Sign on the dotted line. Amy trying to conceal her temper. Come on in here, Aubrey. Aubrey starting towards her. Yes, sir, Amy. I want to tell you it's the poor man that gets it every time. I put a question up to Secretary Mellon in a letter six weeks ago that absolutely stumped him because I haven't had a line from him since. Amy is smiling into his eyes. He passes in front of her and goes into the parlor. The curtain commences to descend slowly. Amy looks darkly toward the kitchen door and stamps her foot with temper, then follows Aubrey into the parlor. 
I simply asked him to what extent his proposed program of income tax revision would affect the great American railroad employee. The curtain is down. Three hours pass. The curtain rises again. Mrs. Fisher is sitting at the right of the table, asleep, her knitting lying in her lap, and Joe, sitting at the left of the table, is endeavoring to pass the tip of a wire through a small eyelet on the baseboard. Amy starts to play the piano in the parlor, and after the usual introduction, Aubrey begins to sing, rocked in the cradle of the deep, in a heavy bass voice. Aubrey singing, Rocked in the cradle of the deep, I lay me down in peace to sleep. Secure I rest upon the wave, for thou alone. Mrs. Fisher starts slightly and wakens. Joe glances at her. Aubrey continues. Has the power to save. Where do you put it? What? Did you say something? Aubrey continues to sing. Not a thing, Mom. Mrs. Fisher brushing back her hair. I must have been dozing. You've been dead. What? Since half past nine. Mrs. Fisher becomes conscious of Aubrey singing. What time is it now, Joe? The singing becomes louder, and Mrs. Fisher rises, with her eyes fastened on the parlor door. Is that him singing in there? Joe, reaching into his belt pocket for an Ingersoll watch. The old scientific American himself. A quarter of twelve. My God, what's he starting to sing at this hour for? She steps to the buffet at the right and puts her knitting bag into one of the drawers. Talent should never be suppressed at any time, Mother. It's a wonder Amy wouldn't have sense enough to stop him. She slams the buffet drawer shut and starts across towards the parlor doors. I never saw a man yet that didn't think he could sing. Put that thing away now, Joe. You've been at it long enough. And see that that back is locked. I don't think Amy has any idea what time it is or she'd shut him up. Let the young man express himself. He gets up and crosses below the table towards the right and up to the kitchen door. Oh, I wouldn't care if he bawled his head off, as far as I'm concerned. I'd be glad if he did, but I don't want him to waken your father. She steps up to the hall door and listens at the foot of the stairs. And that's what he'll be doing the first thing you know, and then the fat'll be in the fire for sure. Aubrey reaches a high note, and Joe and his mother stand looking at each other. Then Joe bursts out laughing. Ain't that terrible, Joe? Do you think I ought to tell Amy what time it is? No. Give the boy a chance. Aubrey finishes on a high note and holds it. Hooray! Aubrey can be heard applauding himself. Joe applauds also. Mrs. Fisher frantically and going towards Joe. Shush, Joe! Joe, going out through the door at the right. Sign on the dotted line. Don't encourage him, for God's sake, Joe. He's bad enough as it is. Mr. Fisher shouting from the head of the stairs. Josie! 
Mrs. Fisher rushing back towards the hall door on her tiptoes. Yes? What the devil's going on down there? Do you know what time it is? Mrs. Fisher trying to pacify him. Why, Joe was just cutting up here a minute ago. What's Amy playing the piano for at this time of the night? Mrs. Fisher trying not to be heard in the parlor. Why, her and Joe was just fooling. Damn funny kind of fooling at this time of night. The neighbors will be wondering what kind of a house we're keeping here. Well, they've stopped it now, Neil. Well, tell them to see that it's kept stopped. And get them lights out down there and go to bed. It's nearly 12 o'clock. Mrs. Fisher turns and looks at the parlor doors. Then there's a burst of wild laughter from Aubrey. This decides Mrs. Fisher. She steps resolutely towards the doors, with the ostensible purpose of opening them. But, before she can reach the knob, the door is yanked open from the inside, and Amy steps out, looking resentfully at her. What's the matter? Mrs. Fisher, a trifle disconcerted. What? I... I was just coming to tell you to be sure and put them lights out. I'm just going up. It's nearly twelve o'clock. Aubrey thrusting his head and shoulders out through the door. I am also just about to take my reluctant leave, Mrs. Fisher. Mrs. Fisher trying to be polite. Well, I don't want to hurry you, but... In fact, the recent outburst was in the nature of a farewell concert. <laughs> he breaks into a wild laugh and draws back into the parlor, and Mrs. Fisher with a series of frantic gestures, intended to convey to Amy the imminence of her father at the head of the stairs, steps back out of the range of the parlor door. Amy makes an impatient movement of her body and stamps her foot, then flounces into the parlor and slams the door. The little old song at twilight, you know, Mother Fisher, to soothe the savage breast. <laughs> he gives vent to another gale of laughter and Mrs. Fisher stands petrified, expecting to hear her husband again. Mrs. Fisher, as Aubrey's laugh subsides, The damn fool! She crosses to the right to the kitchen door and calls out to Joe. Joe! Yeah? You'd better bring Gypsy Queen in and put her in the laundry there. She was shivering when I opened the door this morning. I think it's too cold for her on that back porch yet a while. She moves a little back towards the center of the room. Joe, out at the right. Come on in here, Gypsy. Come on. He whistles. Mrs. Fisher turning around to her left and looking back toward the kitchen door. Ain't she there? <whistles> I don't see her. Mrs. Fisher calling in a high voice. Where are you, Gypsy? Here she is. Come on in here, Gypsy. Come on. That's the old Gypsy kid. The door out at the right closes. Mrs. Fisher going a step nearer to the kitchen door. Go into that laundry there, Gypsy. Come back here, Gypsy. Make her go in there, Joe. Joe stamping his foot. Gypsy. Mrs. Fisher stamping her foot at the kitchen door. Go back in there, Gypsy, you bad girl and go into that laundry this minute. There she goes. 
and don't let me hear a sound out of you when you get in there either or i'll come right straight out and give you what i gave you last sunday afternoon a door closes you'd better put the catch on that door joe or she'll be pushing it open again she wants to lay out here on this rug going nearer to the door again and calling now you remember what i told you gypsy and don't let me have to speak to you again turning and moving across the room to the left your father has her spoiled a door out in the hallway at the left opens and amy can be heard laughing mrs fisher stops dead in the middle of the room and listens Aubrey calling from the hallway. Good night, Mrs. Fisher. Mrs. Fisher turns and darts back into the cellar alcove at the right. Amy in the hallway. I guess she's gone up, Aubrey. Aubrey coming in at the hall door, poising on one toe, hat and cane in hand, and looking about the room. Montreal, mother. Mrs. Fisher flattens herself against the wall at the head of the cellar stairs and listens with a stony expression. I don't think she's in there, Aubrey. And silence was her answer. <laughs> he laughs wildly, turns, and starts out into the hallway again. Right you are, Amy. Glancing up the stairs. On the right side, she is sleeping. <laughs> he goes laughing out into the hallway. End of Act 1, Part 1